All right, well, welcome. Uh, those of you who are joining us at home, you are most welcome also. Uh, you should have found in your email inbox something that looks a little bit like this, minus some of the scribbles, uh, headed uh, Pursuing Purity or Purity. I, 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 I printed the version for you guys that said Purity as the title before I remembered that I'd actually entitled this session Pursuing Purity. So I corrected the PDF and sent it out to those of you who are at home. But the content is exactly the same. You'll need that. And you'll need a Bible. And uh, you'll need to be uh, paying attention because I've got some work for you guys to do this evening. Uh, I think, yeah, everyone's got those here. Let me lead us in prayer. And then we will kick off. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for every good gift that comes to us from you. We thank you for your word, the Bible. Uh, We thank you for its depth and its richness and for the breadth of issues it talks about and the many, many different ways in which it does so. Uh, And we ask that this evening, as you set before us this chapter in the book of Ruth, you'd open our eyes to new things, beautiful things, wonderful things in your word, so that we may be uh, led to greater Christ-likeness, particularly we may be led to greater purity of heart and mind, that aspects of our thoughts which incline instinctively in ungodly and impure directions may be exposed to us by this part of your word, so that we grow more instinctively, single-mindedly pure in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in the book of Ruth, to which I invite you to turn. Um, And I want to begin, I think we'll begin just by reading the text of Ruth chapter 3, and then because it's been a couple of weeks uh, since we last met and we're a number of weeks into this series, I will just have a quick recap of where we'd got to and wh- where we come from, uh, the, the, the scope of this uh, series. And then there are really kind of two issues I want to talk about this evening. The first is under that heading, the transformation of Naomi, which occurred to me actually in a pastoral conversation I had earlier this week, and it just struck me as this is such a profoundly important thing to just remind ourselves of. We could have picked it up last time, uh, but uh, we didn't have time, so I want to pick it up today. And then the main topic for this evening, this issue of of purity, which is raised by what I've called in the the third heading down on your handouts, the moral problem of Ruth chapter 3. And I'm going to get you guys to do some work, and then we'll work through the text ourselves and see what the text does. And what the text does is, I think, one of the most fascinating Uh, ways in which narratives in the Bible work on us. It's very uh, subtle and counterintuitive, and I I hope I'm able to communicate to you what this text is here to do. I hope we get to that. Anyway, let me read it, and then um, we'll jump straight in. So uh, we've got to the end of the barley harvest. Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's fields, uh, been provided for by him, Uh, and living with her mother-in-law. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, 
My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the head, at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if not, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So you remember that uh, when we began this series, I began by observing that uh, I'd received a number of different questions over a number of months about, uh, from men and women, trying to wrestle with the uh, distinct character of godly masculinity, godly femininity, and the particular ways in which we ought rightly to relate to each other. Uh, Partly, just generally, as men and women, and also specifically within marriage. And there are many, many questions, and I listed a whole bunch of categories that they fall under, everything from uh, communication problems within marriage which are surprisingly common to the wrestling with singleness and we thought about that a little bit last time Um, uh, how would you choose a marriage partner whether you're a man or a woman Um, how good are we at understanding one another is it not perhaps sometimes the case that um, let's say men need to work a little bit harder on uh, first peter three living with their wives according to knowledge literally as peter says um 
What does it mean for a husband to be the head of his wife and for a wife to submit to her husband? Um, how should we handle cultural differences, so-called, within marriage, if indeed they're anything to be handled at all? If if, is that just not even a thing, or is it potentially a thing, and what should we do about that? And there are a bunch of other things. And, and I, I observed that in the Reformed world, in recent years, what's happened is there has been an increased desire to try and address many of these questions, which is great. And some of the ways in which they've been addressed have been quite helpful, some of them extremely helpful, but some of them have been rather simplistic, and it's quite common for um, the, the solutions, quote-unquote, to take the form of sort of simplistic, normative one-liners. Um, headship means strength in sacrificial service, for example, which is kind of true as far as it goes, but it doesn't really put the washing on the line. You know what I mean? It's, there's, it, the, the abstractions with and through which we operate sometimes are quite a long way from the actual realities of our relationship. If I say to our newly married David, like, you are to be a, a godly sacrificial servant and a strong leader for your wife, Sophia. Well, great. But there are many men who just misunderstand and gravitate towards one part of that and distort it in a way which actually means you're not being a godly sacrificial at all. You think you're being a strong leader and you're just being a bully and you're not paying attention. You really should listen to your wife a bit more. Um, So that's not because, you know... (laughs) I had the pleasure of talking with David and Sophia at some length before they got married, and it was just wonderful to get to know um, Sophia a little bit and seeing your relationship flourishing, which has been wonderful. Um, So what does the Bible do? The Bible does not just give us those norms. I mean, it does have kind of one-liners. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It does have those statements, and of course, some of those things serve to warn unmarried young people about what kind of husband they should be looking for. If you can't submit to him as the church does to Christ, find somebody else. But at the same time, the the practical nitty-gritty is much more complex and subtle. So the way that the Bible teaches this is in the form of wisdom, into which category Ruth actually falls. It is a narrative, but I, I mentioned that where it lies in the Hebrew Old Testament canon, puts it among the wisdom books. It's after the book of Proverbs, uh, and so it comes after Proverbs 31, the wife of noble character, or literally um, is the female version of um, how Boaz is described in um, chapter 2, verse 1, a worthy man. It's uh, a worthy woman is somehow how, sometimes how it's translated, and that phrase only occurs twice in the whole Bible in Hebrew. It's once in Proverbs 13.1 and once in the text I just read to you. Perhaps you spotted that. So it's, Ruth is a picture of the wife of noble character who is more than just doing whatever her husband tells her, as though that kind of passivity is what's required. But nonetheless, she is submissive and has an admirable and godly husband, even while she's full of initiative and energy and uh, uh, hard work and many talents and gifts of her own. And it comes before the Song of Songs, which is, as well as being a picture of Christ in the church, and of course Boaz is a picture of Christ, Ruth is actually a picture of Christ as well, um, it's a love song. It's a, get over it, guys. The Bible contains love poetry. Sorry. I know we're reformed and all that, but you know, we're not that 
kind of reformed that, that is kind of, you know, the caricature of kind of just all head knowledge and no emotional engagement with the word of God. The Bible tells men and women how to fall in love. Have you ever thought about that? And so you turn to Ruth chapter 3 and you think, really? Is this where the Bible tells us how to fall in? Mm. Go down to the threshing floor. Okay, we're going to come to that in a second, right? Because it does pose us with this tricky problem, doesn't it? Which I've described the, as the so-called moral problem in scare quotes of Ruth chapter 3. Um, we're going to come to that in a second. I want to talk first about the transformation of Naomi. Just before I do that, though, I have recommended to you a book by um, Paul Miller. And there's a quotation from it, just um, we'll come to it in a second, called A Loving Life. Um, there is one moment in this book where he says something which is just really, really, really terrible and really dumb and, and strikingly out of character, given the rest of the book. And I, it really took me by surprise when he said it. It's on page 122 in paragraph 3 where he recommends to a young lady, he said he recommended to a young lady um, to divert $1,000 of the money she was giving as a tithe to buying herself a new wardrobe in order to attract a husband, which strikes me as a strange way of approaching the practice of tithing and also to manifest some slightly odd um, okay it's not that you'd never say to let's say your daughter you know what babe why don't you go and you buy a new dress or two that's fine but it just, just it, it struck me as strange because it's so out of keeping with the rest of the book and I hope that if you've enjoyed the rest of the book if you get it and you enjoy it as much as I did and benefit it from benefit from it as much as I have you won't let that one comment, which I think is somewhat unguarded and unfortunate, we won't let that put you off. But please don't think that I endorse that, okay? <laughs> um, I do buy do- close to my daughters. I wouldn't suggest you approach it in that way. Anyway, um, I do love the guy, and I, I'm, I'm glad that he's written the book. I just wanted to alert you to that. Anyway, so we're going to jump into this, the, the moral problem of Ruth chapter 3, or rather you are, in just one moment, after I've talked to you about the transformation of Naomi. Because did you, dis- did you notice, right, the end of chapter 1, she comes back from the country of Moab. And we remember when we talked about that part of the book, and you remember the state she was in. Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant or sweetness. Call me bitterness, Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She's bitter towards God. She can't see the gift of God who is standing at her side. Because she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. She can't see any of the blessings that she has. She's blaming her situation on God and holding it against him. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Notice how many times she says me. Me, 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 me. My life is so terrible. Um, And it's a really desperately sad picture, actually. And you're left at the end of chapter one wondering whether this woman is just going to shrivel away into lonely, angry bitterness. What could possibly help her? And it calls to mind the the many analogous situations you might find yourself in, as indeed a dear friend of mine found himself in recently, where he had a close relative a good, or a good friend who is full of, I don't know, maybe anger or bitterness or resentment or um, has 
begun to grow old and has never grown mature as a Christian. He doesn't really know how to be a father or a grandfather or a, a grandmother. He doesn't know how to love. And, and you worry for Naomi at the end of chapter 1, at least I think the reader is supposed to, that is this the start of this descent into angry, resentful widowhood? Because it could easily be, couldn't it? And perhaps you have friends or relatives like that. Perhaps you have parents or aunts and uncles or grandparents who, you know, they've professed faith in some way at some point. But you can just see them at the end of Ruth chapter 1 in some way or another. What could be done? And what happens, of course, is Ruth chapter 2, where Ruth takes the initiative to, so to speak, build the bridge towards provision for her. She's so bitter and frustrated that if she stays where she is, Naomi is likely to go hungry, and then she'll have even more things imagined to be bitter about. Um, Well, Ruth, it's like she goes the extra mile to try to be the provider, to try to be the example She's younger, and she is the one who's providing the example of godliness and faithfulness to her mum. And it makes you feel awkward, doesn't it? Because you want to say, well, how do I honour my father and mother? Fifth commandment. Well, maybe the way you do it, if they're a bit like Naomi, is by being a bit like Ruth. Like, you have to be the provider. You have to be the one who goes the extra mile for them when... You see other people's parents going the extra mile for their children. It has to be the other way around. And look at the transformation that it brings about. It takes you to the end of chapter 2, verse 19. Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She, she's not so blind that she... she she's, there's, a, there's a man involved, right? Obviously. Look at all this grain you've got. Um, blessed be the man, quote from Psalm 1 or will be quoted later in Psalm 1, echoed later in Psalm 1. And then verse 20, it's remarkable, she sees the Lord's kindness in the things that somebody else has acted to bring about. Can you see that? May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And you want to say, well, look, Naomi, if you only, you you could have been, the person whose actions uncovered the Lord's kindness. Could you not have hobbled down to the field to try to find somebody to help you? Could you not have been the person who took the initiative? Everybody else's mum does. Everybody else's granddad does. Why why is my mum, why is my granddad not able to just get up and, yeah, some people just aren't. And what actually had to happen is the younger person acted in a way that revealed the Lord's goodness to the older. Sometimes wives do it for their husbands. And sometimes it it ought to be the case that a husband lives so as to sanctify his wife, Ephesians 5. But sometimes it's the case that the wife lives in such a way as to sanctify the husband, 1 Corinthians 7. 
I'm not projecting that as the ideal to which you should aspire. I'm saying it might be the only path forward for you. Now, I hope you don't get into that position. I hope nobody finds themselves in this position, but I'm a pastor. I get to, I get to help people in situations they'd rather not be in all the time. And this is one such, where you find yourself having to serve somebody who really you think, well, they ought to be serving me. They're older. They're the one who should be taking the lead, and they're not. And the transformation it brings about in Naomi is just wonderful. She recognizes God's providence. Um, she realizes this is this close relative, one of our redeemers, verse 20. Maybe she's seeing a path forward for what happens in chapter 3. It seems like she is. Certainly, she realizes it's a good idea. You know, she, Ruth has found something good. Verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So can you see what's happened? Um, it's this subtle, so subtle encouragement to you to all of us who may find ourselves in a position where you feel like you've been let down, actually, by your mum or your dad or your granddad or your auntie or your husband. They ought to be there for you. And what you have to be there for them. And it's not how it should be, but it's better than you not being there for them. And the transformation that you could make in somebody's life is simply incalculable, and it's what Naomi experiences. By the end of chapter 4, she's the one nursing the baby. And the women actually say, a son has been born to Naomi. Obviously, it's been born to Ruth. But come to that another time. Um, but can you see this picture? It's, uh, it's not what I hope any of you ever have to do. But it's what I know some of you probably will. And I hope you find encouragement from Ruth to do so. You with me? Let me pause there before we go on. Any questions about that? Comments? Yeah, Preston, thank you. Right, yes. Bitterness is like rottenness to the bones, and so Ruth became a, a redeemer to Naomi. Exactly right. She, they, they, they're both portrayed as redeemers. And um, Miller points out in his book that um, Boaz is formally described as the redeemer multiple times. But yeah, it's exactly right. Um, it's a, yeah. The, there's that wonderful moment in Titus chapter 2, isn't there, which, where um, Paul says... What's the thing that teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? It's not the law of God, or the fear of God, or the wrath of God. What is it that teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions in Titus 2? It's the grace of God, yes. Thank you. The grace of God, which teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So there's Naomi mired in ungodliness and worldly passions in the sense of Emotions, bitterness, anger, frustration, resentment. And the grace of God, shown through this Moabite who hardly speaks the language, teaches her to renounce that. 
And so the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Oh, well, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> if that's the way you want to do it. Not, not the ideal to which I'm encouraging you to aspire. You don't need to become like Naomi. <laughs> Please don't. Right, you with me? Okay. Thank you, Preston. That's great. All right, let's, um, let's jump into um, to Ruth chapter 3. And um, quotation from our friend Paul Miller, quoting from the guy who is actually my favorite commentator on the book of Ruth, Dan Block, is um, a great biblical scholar. Um, Miller writes, To an outside observer, there is no difference between what Ruth is doing and what a prostitute might do. As one scholar said, and this scholar is Dan Block, what is one to think of a woman who bathes, puts on perfume, and then in the dark of night goes out to a field where the man, and you notice that phrase, the man, keeps appearing in chapter 3, is sleeping and uncovers his legs. And that brings us face to face with the moral problem quote-unquote, of Ruth chapter 3. Naomi is transformed, absolutely transformed by the grace of God, which has taught her to renounce the ungodliness and worldly passions that she indulged at the end of chapter 1, the bitterness and resentment and all that. She's totally turned upside down and says, I've got a great idea. What you should do, (laughs) you should dress up really fancy and go down to where all the guys are and they've been drinking and wait till they've fallen asleep, and then go and uncover the feet of the guy who, you know, he's already you know, indicated that, you know, he, he will tell you what to do. Right. And what I want you to do is take, I'll give you five, six minutes or so. I want you to work through the passage, and I want you to list as many reasons as possible why, in Dan Block's words, an outside observer, sorry, this is um, Miller's words, an outside observer, unquote, might think there's something a bit fishy going on, okay? Because this, you have to get this feeling in your head for the chapter to work. Now, you already see it, right? It looks a bit dodgy. Is dodgy a word in Texan? Yeah, it is in English. Um, uh, but I want you to take five, six minutes and just go through and make a note of verses and, and what the slightly sketchy details are. Do it in twos or threes, wherever you're sitting, and then we'll return you to order in, and then we'll look at this together. Those of you who are at home, this includes you. Don't just go off and make a cup of tea in the kitchen. Get the, the handout and get your Bibles, and um, uh, let's see what you can discover as you look at this together. Thank you. You've seen enough. Please don't make us look at this any longer, Pastor Jeffrey. It's too embarrassing. There are children present, etc. Okay, so let's just lay it all out on the table, so to speak. Let's work. We'll work, th- work through the text, um, and we'll we'll discover all the things that between you you found that make this. Uh, incident look a little bit sketchy and then I'll, I'll explain to you how this text works so come on who's going to start off let's start, start at the beginning verse one anything anything a bit dodgy there eh, probably okay 
Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Looks fairly above board, doesn't it? I mean, seek rest for you would be a good thing, correct? Um, I mean, in the light of what follows, you might be tempted to think, yeah, that looks like a slightly pious excuse. But let's not, let's not prejudge the issue just on that basis yet. Anything else in verse 1? Or is, or is it verse 2 where the, the trouble really starts? Verse 2? Go on, what's going on here? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Beg your pardon? Yeah. Well, probably the threshing floor would have been up on a high place um, because you're relying on the wind to carry away all the chaff. So it would have been visible. Also, it would have been known because um, Ruth would probably have been aware that um, it was, the Boaz was doing that. You, you tend to hire a threshing floor um, because not everybody's land would have a high place with a kind of rocky outcrop for, for threshing on it. Uh, so it's like his, his turn. He's hiring, he's renting that space. So all his men are going up there tonight. I guess she found out. Barley. Yeah, it, it, the barley harvest has begun. Barley is not just for bread. Um, there's just the hint of the other stuff you make out of barley. And we, we know, because later in the passage, when he's, uh, he'd eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. Yeah. They're not excited about the barley harvest because they get bread. I mean, these are guys, right? They've been working all, all summer and first half of the autumn. It's beer time. There's just a hint. This is probably overreaching, but barley, seed. It's just about possible that there's a hint there of an association that might be in Naomi's mind. But again, we're probably not supposed to see that yet. Verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak... And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating or eating and drinking. Anybody want to state the obvious for us? Yeah, she's dressed up for a date. I mean, it's like party time. Go, go to where all the guys are. Uh, wearing your, literally, your simla, it's the wedding garment. It's a, it's a cloak or an outer garment, but it's used elsewhere to describe the the garment that a woman would wear on her wedding day. Put on your most, and obviously it's not like in um, modern we- world where people spend you know, $15,000 on a dress and only wear it once, but you know, they'd, have worn something, they'd have worn something really beautiful, and in, in communities where people weren't really, really wealthy, they'd just worn their most beautiful clothes and adorn themselves with flowers and whatever else, you know, ladies' things. Um, Dress up as though you're dressing for the most important and romantic moment of your life. Anoint yourself, perfumed oil. Um, Do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Why not? Yeah. Like a, a man of dignity and godliness, when he's sober will do what he did in chapter 2. My daughter. But give him a few beers. There's a good chance to become like 
all the other guys in all the other fields. So wait till he's finished eating and drinking. Don't let him know you're there. When he lies down, okay, pay close attention to the words. When he lies down, uncover the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. You notice anything? What's your, what translation have you got? Oh, yeah. I can't, there's no counting for taste. <laughs> what, there's three times the same verb appears. What's the verb? Lie or lie down. It, uh, Hebrew verb shakav, which can mean to lie. You shall not shakav with a man as with a woman. That's what it means. And, and, and we still, in old English, would, you'd find that expression in, in certain Bible translations even. He's going to lie. You go and lie next to him. Um, uncover his feet. Is anybody else really tall and they find that what happens when you... What happens when you, your feet get uncovered during the night and the air conditioning has been left on at 68 degrees? Yeah, you wake up. So it's, apparently there's some biological reason. I forget what it is. I read a book about it, sleep and stuff once. But anyway, um, I've got news for you. The Hebrew word feet is a euphemism for something else. It just means feet. It's a very, very common word. But it's sometimes used in that more salacious way. Go and uncover his feet. What? And what's the last phrase of verse 4? I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to belabor this point, um, but just, just read the last phrase of verse 4. He will tell you what to do. You know, there's a, there's a way of reading that, which is just, you seriously, is this in the Bible? The, the, the older man will tell the younger... Let's move on. Verse 5. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Okay, which, which is one clue that it might not be all that it seems. Okay, but let's move on. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. What do you make of verse 7? When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. I want somebody to tell me how much he'd drunk. Enough to get tired. Enough to get tired? <laughs> Enough to not know what? Well, it says he went to the end of the heap of grain <laughs> he slept in the well see this is where they'd have slept right I mean it's probably miles out in the middle of nowhere right I guess he's just it sounds like what they've done well is it you know they've been working so hard all night they're just completely dog tired and they just but they what a great day's work you know when you got to the end of a great day's work and you, you every single muscle in your body aches 
and then somebody gives you an ice cold beer. And I don't mean like Miller Lite or something, I mean like beer, right? <laughs> Obviously they didn't have refrigerators, but, and it's like, oh, thank you very much. And you drink it and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, great, because what are you gonna do, walk home? No, because you've been, it's two in the morning. Or is it, you know, they work till about 6 p.m. Let's get the beers out, boys, whee! And he'd eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. I don't know, do you know? But, if, but there's a way of reading it where, can you see what's happening? A picture is being painted for us, which doesn't look very sober, no pun intended. Keep going. Um, she came down and uncovered his feet and lay down, that verb again. It's like rubbing it in for us. And then, then play, pay close attention. What's happened in verse 8? At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. What's happened in that verse? Nicole, go on. Right. He's, she's lost her identity. She had a name, but now she's just a woman. Who's he? The man. You see, it, it has now become, it's no longer Boaz. You know, the, the decent, upright landowner, my daughter, speaking graciously to Ruth. And it's no longer Ruth, the woman of propriety and dignity from chapter one. It's this visceral, the man, the woman. Shadowy figures at midnight, out in the middle of nowhere and everyone else has been drinking and they're fast asleep. Startled and turn over and behold, the woman laid his feet. He said, who are you? Anything suspicious about that? Why would he have to ask who she is? Right? There were other young women. He's not expecting to see young women there, because end of the chapter, it's like, don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. You're not supposed to do this. She's, she's all dolled up. She's not normally dressed in a simlar to go to, the, to glean. You know how sometimes there's the, you, you, you see somebody, you see a young lady dressed up with makeup on who you've quite often seen not dressed up and without makeup on, and you go, oh, yeah. Can you see what, that's, that's the picture? Or is it just that it's really dark? It's like, who are you? I don't know. But the narrative is inviting you to follow the logic of this quite ambiguous... Yeah, make yourself known to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right? And then... She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. This is the most ambiguous, deliberately ambiguous line probably in the whole chapter. Um, The wings, the the word wings is used in a a wonderful variety of ways in the the Bible. You've heard, some of you heard me talk about this before. Um, If I rise on the wings of the dawn, Psalm 139, the wings are the rays of the sun. 
literally. Um, and the word kanaf, meaning wings, is used of the rays of the sun elsewhere in scripture. It's used of the wings of a bird, um, which the Lord in Deuteronomy 32 hovers. Uh, you know, he brought them out on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. Um, hovering over them, and the, the same word there is used as in Genesis 1 verse 2, where the spirit hovers over the surface of the waters. So it's the wings of a bird, it's the wings of the dawn, it's also the wings of, a, of somebody's garment. It's the, if you're wearing a robe, um, a heavy robe in which you might sleep, um, it's just the, um, uh, it's just the, the skirt, the hem of the robe. It's the thing the part of the robe that the woman would have touched when she came to Jesus. And so is she saying, um, you're a redeemer, you know, would you do the, the Deuteronomy 32 things and hover over me and draw me on eagle's wings to yourself and to the Lord? Or is she just saying, you know, spread your garment over me as well? Anything else? You skim down the passage. Anything else that makes it look a bit suspicious to you? Go on, Mr. Barnes. Uh, at the end of the night, don't make yourself known. Keep it quiet. Yeah, let's just keep this between us. Here's some barley. Yeah, here's some barley. Mum's the word, and see you tomorrow night. It's not what he says, but, yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? Everybody knows what powerful men do when they've taken advantage of women. You pay them hush money. Sorry. <laughs> right? Anything else you noticed that makes it look a little bit dodgy? That's probably enough to be going on with, isn't it? Oh, yeah, David, yeah. Yeah, he, he suggests, like, lay here till the morning. Yes, it's like. Yeah, and, and there clearly is some kind of physical attraction. I mean, he mentions, you know, you've not gone after the young men, you've come after me. Maybe it's money rather than youth that you, you want. So you stay here. He, if he's surprised to see her, he quite quickly gets used to her. <laughs> what about verse 14? He laid his feet until the morning, but what? Yeah, get get up before anybody notices, you know, because because obviously you shouldn't be here. We we know that we've done something that probably you know don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Go home while it's still dark. Yeah, we've we've done something that ought to be kept secret. So can you see what's happened in this? This whole narrative is shaped so that, and here's the crucial thing, and I, don't, I hope I can communicate this in a way that, so if, if you've been dozing off, wake up, okay? This narrative is designed so that if there is the slightest hint of any impure suspicions in our hearts 
we will see impurity here. You with me? If we could ever imagine anything a bit sketchy taking place, that's the conclusion that we will leap to. Because it's just obvious, right? At least when we first read it. If you just skim through, and you guys have done that, and you look quite carefully. In other words, what, what this text does, first, is it exposes anything in us that might be impure or salacious or might regard as normal this kind of behavior. And then what it does at the same time is to make it absolutely clear that nothing of the kind actually happened. I am convinced, because I'm convinced the text says so, and I'm going to show you in a a minute. I'm I'm convinced that nothing untoward happened between Ruth and Boaz. I'm not so convinced about Naomi's intentions. I don't know what was going on in Naomi's mind. Um, I think Naomi might be that character in whom you see some of that um, moral ambiguity. But what happens, it's like when you, you watch a couple of people doing something and you think, that looks a bit suspicious to me. And then you realize that that never even occurred to them. It occurred to you because of the sin in your heart. But it never occurred to them. And what you see in them is precisely a rejection, and in some points, an explicit rejection, of all of the opportunities that were laid before them for ungodliness and impurity, and all of the uh, temptations to that. And in its place, what you see is the kindling of actual love between two people. And to show you that, what I want to do is to read through the whole passage again. And I'll, I'll show you the points that Boaz and Ruth would point to if they were standing here just to prove that, honestly, guys, nothing happened. We're looking at it in a sec. Yeah, KB. Um, before you read that, one thing that's interesting is that Ruth never questioned Boaz's Right. Yes, like, yes. I would never do anything untoward and didn't question. He just was like, okay, right. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've already started. This is so helpful, right? Because those, those two things are the first, well, they're not necessarily the first, but let's begin with them. Two clues. So let's just take them in the order you, you highlighted them. So, so Ruth just goes ahead and does it. I'll do whatever you ask, but she, she will, 
it's as though she's portrayed as the one who, like, it never entered my head to do anything. Well, how could it have done? And you're quite right, Boaz, when he says, and we'll, I think we'll see this more clearly in a couple of minutes, when he says, you know, don't let, go home when it's still dark, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor, he's trying to protect her reputation from scandalous accusations from other people who would make that assumption. Yeah? And it's, just as an aside, well, no, this is actually an important point of principle. One of the most important things, especially for men in embarking on a relationship with a woman to whom they're not married, is to preserve and protect their reputation. You know? Now, how you do this, you know, there are different ways of doing that. It will depend on your age and circumstances and, you know... Uh, but it would be quite reasonable for a, a father to suggest to a young lady who's getting, who's his daughter, who's getting to know a, another guy, you know, sure, go out for a cup of coffee during the day, but, you know, don't be going to a movie and then drive home at 11 p.m. And, oh, yeah, we got lost. Yeah, sure you did. You know, it's just, you're just asking for opportunity for accusation, even if nothing happened, as well as you're putting yourself in the way of temptation. So it's a really important point. What... And it's not just men and women, it's, it's actually men. We ought to be concerned to preserve our own reputation. A young man who's interested in getting to know a young lady shouldn't want to take her out in those early stages in a context where he's opening himself up to that kind of accusation. Because why, why would you... Anything that you're accused of, she'll get accused of. You know, it's just a mess. Why would you do that? So... There's wisdom in keeping yourself in a position where nobody could have the slightest suspicion. Yeah? Uh, Anne? Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. So setting an example... You know, I, I don't want them to get the wrong idea so that they start thinking it's... Yeah, very good. Um, just flip over to the other side of the, the handout. There you've got um, an outline of the structure of Ruth, chapter 3, which I've shown some of you before. I think, Anne, you were in the class on Ruth that I taught a year or two ago. Um, Ruth, chapter 3, loads of time. Um, Ruth chapter 3 has a quite complex structure, which is a combination of a chiasm and a panel structure. Now, you all know what chiasm is because you're all saints, right? (laughs) And I preach here occasionally, right? A chiasm is a structure that goes like A, B, C, D, E, E, D, C, B, A. And you see that here, yeah? If you start at the top, Naomi said to her mother, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. And that matches the last bit, A prime. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest. You see? Daughter, rest. Daughter, rest. A, A prime. And that, that structure continues. Now, in the middle, you have a different structure. Instead of um, like A, B, C, C, B, A, it's like A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. Can you see that it doesn't go in and then out. It goes in and then in again. It's called a panel structure. 
It's slightly less common in the Bible, but it's not unknown. And this has a panel structure in the middle of a chiasm, which is a really cool bit of... You get some of this in the book of Revelation, where you get multiple panels inside multiple layers of chiasms. You also get it in the book of Isaiah. It's a complete pig's breakfast, but it's really cool if you can figure it out. Um, Now, the reason this is important, partly because it's beautiful and it's just the most spectacularly wonderful piece of literature on earth, but also because it helps you to interpret the text if you spot these things. So you notice, for example, that A and A prime are related because the same words are used, but they're also related thematically. Naomi says she'd like to seek rest for Ruth. What kind of rest is that? Well, the man will not rest until he's sorted this thing out. And the thing he's got to sort out is the proper legal processes for redemption and therefore marriage. The guy doesn't think he's got what he came for. What the guy wants to do is to go through the proper legal processes, which is going to be an awful headache and lots of expense and time and hassle in chapter 4, because he wants to secure the future well-being of this woman. He doesn't just want a one-night stand. And moreover, he will not rest until he's done it, because how it's supposed to work is men don't rest. Women get to rest Men work so that women can rest. Guys, it is normal for you to be exhausted so that your wives are... Well, they'll get exhausted too because they have to have children and that kind of stuff. It's not that you never get to work, darling. I know, sorry. But, but the point is, like, you ought to be completely shattered when you come home from work in the evening. And you should never be in that position where you're kind of resentful because how you come you get to stay at home all day and just play games with the kids like if it's the case that your wife is less exhausted than you that's great it's not that she's not pulling her weight it might be that you're doing a good job and it might be that she's doing a good job what it ought not to be is that the guy is kind of resting the whole time and the woman's scurrying around not resting to try and provide for the family that's backwards can you see the difference and this man will not rest until he's secured rest for you. He'll get to rest, but only once you rest. Whereas a guy who'd got what he came for will be like, thanks, and walk away. Can you see? So the chiasm, the structure, helps us to interpret the text. A, A prime, right? B, B prime. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? That's what. Naomi initially says, you know, he's, he's, he's our relative, he's a kinsman. He, he, he might realise that he has some kind of obligation in Old Covenant law to us. Matches with what he says, that you mustn't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. He's the kind of relative who will provide for, for grandma. What a guy. He's, you know, he's, I, I got, I'm, I'm just going to have to take extra hours at work and, and start a side hustle and work harder so we can build like a little a flat for, for grandma to move into because we want to look after her. I don't, I don't just want you. I'm willing to provide for your baggage. And he's done that. And you see that because you see that how the structures match. Can you see? See? 
He's winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Well, that's going to be great because that will make him rich, won't it? Because, you know, he's had a successful harvest. He's having a drink with his friends. But in C prime, the matching structure, what does it, matching part of the structure, what does he do with the barley? Gives it to her, yeah. This wealthy man who's, you know, has a great year, big bonus. It's like he's going to, he's given this huge thing of barley to me again. We've got more barley than we know what to do with. Naomi and Ruth's little house has got like barley sacks stacked up across all the walls. Because this guy's been so generous. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Well, it's interesting already, right? I mean, it's just, I think it's interesting. I think you do too. Um, verse 3, Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. He's had a skinful. Well, that's supposed to be interpreted in the light of the matching part of the section in D. So the, the really prominent, one really prominent element in, sorry, in D prime, one really prominent element in verse 3, section D, is the garment, the wedding garment, the beautiful dress. Like, You're gorgeous in that. What does he do with it? So just bring it over here. Hold on. <laughs> Can you carry a bit more? Okay. Fills it with barley. This beautiful long flowing gown that she comes back with. That, the, the wedding garment does not become for him an object of lust. It becomes a means for her to take home the provision that he wants to give her. And the go down to the threshing floor seems, as far as I can make out, to match with and go back to the city. It's like this place isn't her destination. You know, she, she, she comes away from there, if you see what I'm saying. Um, and then finally, in, in this chiastic section, E, when he lays down, observe the place where he lies, lie down. So she lay, but she arose. Can you see how that works? literarily, if, if that's a word, in terms of how the literature works, it's, it's lie down, lie down, lie down. You're expecting the matching portion to be lie down, lie down, lie down. Because that would like reinforce, come and lie here with me. And so she lay with him. And behold, she lay with him until the morning. And they enjoyed lying. To, no, it doesn't say that. Lie, lie down, because that establishes the parallel. But then it's the opposite. So she arose. As though... Section E prime, verse 14, is refuting the suggestion initiated by all that lying in verse 4. You see what I'm saying? Lie down, lie down, lie down carries this connotation of something sexual. And verse 14 refutes it. She arose. And, of course, that reminds you of something else, doesn't it? We've already said, KB, you pointed out... um, she went down to the threshing floor in verse 6. Don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And that's that important and subtle point that, yeah, there are people out there who would draw the ungodly conclusions. They'd think you only came here for one thing and that's all that I was interested in and we're done now. Let's not have that compl- complication. Let's not shatter your reputation. Like Everyone knows you're a worthy woman. Let's not, let's not ruin it because of their 
impure assumptions. So that's, that's the chiasm. Can you see how that works? Now, now we've got to interpret the panel structure in the same way. And again, what happens is that each time when you run into something that previously you might have thought had some suggestion of impurity or impropriety, the matching part refutes the suggestion. So look, can you see how it works? It's one, two, three, four. I, I did it with numbers so we didn't get confused with letters and a, B, two lots of A, B, C, D. So um, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, Roman numerals. Verse 7 is number 1. Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. So he's enjoyed all this. Like, yeah. Oh. And you're, you're thinking, is this, he's had a beer at the end of a long day's work and that's fine. Maybe he's had a couple. Or is it he's had 17 and now he's ready for anything? Or nothing? Well, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord. He, so he's enjoyed the blessing of harvest, which you look in Deuteronomy and... Leviticus and uh, Joshua and Judges and in fact like everywhere Ruth chapter 1 the harvest is the Lord's blessing remember Naomi heard in chapter 1 that the Lord had come to the aid of his people to give to them food to give to them bread and so the stuff that comes from barley is the Lord's blessing which he enjoys in verse 7 is that godly blessing or ungodly blessing you know, is it, is it an overindulgence in you shouldn't have that many Miller lights before breakfast? Or is it just he's enjoyed what God has given? Well, you can tell, verse 10, he's pronouncing a blessing on her. It's, he's doing it the right way. Yeah. The next little section, pale blue, in the end of verse 7. She came softly and uncovered his feet. And you're thinking, well, what does she do? Does she just, like, uncover his feet? Like, wake up, Boaz. Or was it, you know, uh, to uncover somebody's nakedness is a, is a way of, um, that's a, uh, a figure of speech in Scripture to connote sexual intimacy. Um, and so did she do that? Well, it's interesting because the parallel section, look, look what it says. You've made this last kindness greater than the first. This is what Boaz says. In that you've not gone after young men. Now just think about that for a second. If Ruth was the kind of girl who would go up to a man in the middle of the night at the threshing floor and uncover his feet, do you think this would be the first time? Really? No. She, if she's that kind of a girl, this would... She would, this would have been like the 12th, 15th time, probably this harvest, because all these strapping young men around the place, they'd all know, you know where her birthmarks were by this time of the season. But Boaz says, no, you're not that kind of a girl. That, that's just not... I know what you're like. You've not gone after these young men. You, and actually, this is, this is where you see the spark of genuine love kindled between them and, all, and sort of reciprocated. She has, in, by implication, she has gone after him, but not in that way. She's, she's gone to him seeking um, redemption from him. We'll come to that in a, in a second. And she's not gone to him for what she could have got from the young men. She's, she's this 
picture of, she, she wants this man, this godly man. And he recognizes that and reciprocates. It's an odd kind of relationship. It, it looks like he's older than her by maybe quite a number of years. Just sociologically, given that he's the landowner, he might be, he could be twice her age. You know, he could be 55, um, she could be 30, 28, something like that. You know. But he, he regards her interest as kindness. And she's looking to him for covenant love. And it is, you know, look, when you're, um, it's going to sound really, I'll just say it, okay? When you're young, right? And actually, when you get older as well, of course you see physical attraction. My wife is actually the most beautiful woman in the world. There is no debate about that, is there? And I know your wife is the most beautiful woman in the world as well. <laughs> and that's fine. Right? Well, that's how it ought to be. Um, and, not but, and at the same time, there is, there's something else that you ought to be looking for, which cannot, and this is a crucial point about this purity issue, it cannot be bought cheap by making yourself available. If, if, you, if all you young ladies, all you beautiful young ladies, you single ladies I'm talking to, just make yourself available, you, can, you could have had as many of these young men as you wanted. And what, what will make you blessed by the Lord will be finding a man like Boaz. You might have to wait a little longer. That's fine. There's no woman in the world, I've said this before, there's no woman in the world who needs a husband so badly she can afford to marry a bad one. So please don't. Please look very carefully. Find a man like Boaz. Because what will happen is that the, the love between you will intensify and deepen as you get to know each other, and it's starting to do that here. Um, in verse 8, we've got one minute of ordinary time left, plus the normal three minutes of overtime, so don't worry, we'll finish. Uh, verse 8, you remember um, all of the visceral physicality of behold a woman, the man was startled. Behold, a woman. You've got all this. Um, the, 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 the identities disappear, and it's just, he's a man, she's a woman. And it's a picture of all these anonymous one-night stand sort of relationships, which it's so tempting, apparently, for single people to pursue. And it matches in verse 11. This is, this is what Boaz actually thinks of this young lady. Now, my daughter, don't fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Yeah? She, I, I know what to do. And it's not that. We'll come to what it is in a second. For all my fellow townsmen know that you're the Proverbs 31.10 woman. It's the only other occurrence of ish, ishet 
I can't remember the, the female form, the, the woman of noble character. It's woman of strength and valor or something is how it should be translated. Mm -hmm. um, it's an elaborate, long phrase. But a woman of noble character. And so what is it that she actually wants? Like, I'm going to do for you all, all that you want. And the answer is in Roman numeral 4, second half of verse 9, Spread your wings over your servant because you're a hunky, strapping, weightlifting, Adonis-like model. No. It's like you're a redeemer. You're the Goel. You're the, you're the one who's bound by law. Although actually, it turns out he's not yet. But you're the one who, who may have the legal responsibility to provide for me. In other words, what she really wants from a husband is the kind of Ephesians 5 picture of a husband. Um, uh, husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, that phrase, gave himself up, is a technical term in, in the Greek New Testament for laying one's life down in death. It's usually, I think, in Romans 4.25 in, in, to speak of Christ giving himself up to death. Um, that's, what it, that's what the godly woman should be looking for. It's what the godly husband should be doing. And that's what Ruth wants. So Ruth wants a, a man who will draw her into the community of the redeemed, who will sanctify her. That's what Ruth wants. And Boaz, well, it's really interesting Here's this guy, a mature man, clearly a godly man, a landowner, wealthy, and he's not married. Why not? Everyone gets married in Israel. In ancient cultures, you, a man of this age, with this wealth, he should be married by now. Why is he not married yet? Come on, somebody tell me. Go on, Nicole. Yeah. He's not met somebody he wants to marry. And so he's willing to wait too, apparently for quite a long time. Because the younger men are, well, younger. He's, he'd rather be a bachelor than marry the wrong kind of woman. It, it would have been, I mean, a guy like this, yeah. We, we, we know tragically of many uh, men who are far too prominent in the public eye for everybody's good, who have power and money and can get what they want. And he's not like that. So he wants a godly woman, she wants a godly man, and she wants to be redeemed. And then you have this, do you, what do you notice? And we're almost done, I promise. What do you notice about Roman numeral 4 and the second Roman numeral 4, beginning in verse 12? What's the big difference between them? Just look at it on the page. Don't bother looking at the words. Just look at it on the page. Bigger. Yeah, it's bigger, Mr. Barnes. Thank you. You, say, <laughs> that's right. you may talk. It's okay, you're right. I know you're doing the audiovisual stuff. It's much bigger. Now, this is... You might think, oh, this is a bit weird because it means the structure doesn't match. Exactly. The structure doesn't match. When you're reading through this and, and you're looking at the structure, this, this portion, verses 12, 13 is four times as long as the part of the text that it matches with, 
which is supposed to make you go, what? This doesn't... And this is the part that sets up the problem that needs to be solved next. Did you notice that every chapter so far in the book of Ruth ends by solving one problem and raising the next? End of chapter one, you've solved the problem of starving and in Moab because you're back in Israel. The Lord has brought food to his people. But how are you going to get any food? That's the question because you've got two women in Bethlehem. Solution to that is in chapter two, which is um, few. Ruth has got some gumption, even if Naomi hasn't. So she goes out to glean and gets them some food and gets them tons of food. So they've got all the food they need, but there's still two women in Bethlehem. How are they going to get married? How are they going to have the security of somebody to look after them? Naomi's a little bit old, but Ruth chapter 3 is going to fix this. Now, I say Naomi's a little bit old. She's apparently too old to have children. Not too old to get married, obviously, but she sends Ruth to solve this marriage problem, finds the redeemer, finds the potential husband, and you think, great, now the story can end. This wonderful, happy romance, and this lady who's waited you know, a while and the man who's waited even longer, they finally can get married and all live happily ever after. No, they can't, because, verse 12, it's true that I'm a redeemer, but there's a problem. There's a redeemer nearer than I. There's a closer relative. So stay here tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Okay, let him do it. <gasps> what? But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now, this is, I don't know, is Boaz deliberately trying to make her nervous? I doubt it. I think he's just reflecting the legal priority that this other man has. There's a closer relative who's legally entitled to um, marry Ruth and presumably redeem the land which used to belong to Elimelech, Naomi's husband. And There's a whole bunch of tangled legal stuff. Bottom line is, it's not a done deal yet. Boaz needs to not only be godly, he's going to need to be shrewd because he's going to have to figure out how to prevent Ruth or Naomi or both of them being shunted off to some man who's likely to be less godly than he is. And that's the problem that's fixed in chapter 4, to which we'll return next week when we start thinking about the forgotten virtue of shrewdness. It turns out that godliness consists not only in knowing how to deal gently and graciously with other godly people, but also knowing how to deal with people who are ungodly or potentially ungodly and not leaving the vulnerable in a mess because you're so naive. If you really want to love your wife, you need to be ready to do that as well. On which note, seven minutes over time. Sorry. Okay, let me pray and then we're done. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for uh, this wonderful little book. Thank you for Ruth and Boaz and for the fine example that they set of propriety and godliness to the extent that we may have thoughts in our hearts that lead us to make other assumptions about them, we're ashamed and we confess those to you and ask that you'd purify us so that we long for, above all else, the purity that uh, Christ exemplifies and that Ruth and Boaz also showed. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, have the rest of a wonderful evening. I will see you.
on Sunday, Lord willing. Pastor Shaw, do you have any instructions for us concerning the chairs?